Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're going on a road trip with Ronald Malfi. Ronald is an author who horror fans have long raved about. Those in the know compare him to the very best, but to those outside the circle of the horror initiated, he may not yet have, have the reputation that he so rightly deserves. With his new novel, Come With Me, that feels like it's all about to change. Come With Me is Ronald's 16th novel, and as you'll hear in the following conversation, it's many things at once. It's a murder mystery, a horror story, a love story for the lost, and a journey around a murky triangle of middle America. It's also a deeply felt exploration of grief and loss born from real tragedy. It's all of those things, but it's also a rollicking good time. Just like Chuck Wendig's The Book of Accidents last week, Come With Me feels like a return to the throbbing engine of mainstream horror that we all grew up on. I read it over three very hot days here in the north of England, and it chilled my sweltering blood delightfully. Speaking of the heat, though, a heads up. I usually record these interviews in the attic room of my house, where it's lovely and quiet and calm. For the last two weeks, that room has been roughly as hot as the inside of a McDonald's apple pie. The heat even killed my Wi-Fi booster and, and would have killed me. So I was forced to relocate downstairs where I got on my wife's nerves and where the acoustics aren't as good. As you'll hear, there's, there's a touch of echo on my end of the conversation. Now, you're all very kind and probably won't care, but we're committed to quality here at Talking Scared, so I wanted to make sure that you know that I know that this isn't prime audio. It may be the same next week, but after that, we are back to standard operating procedure and the sound quality will go back to being as lovely and dulcet as my voice can possibly be. But anyway, it's a good conversation and Ronald's voice is clear and crisp and what he says matters a lot more than me. So this week, quite literally, come with me. That's it. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Ronald. Thanks for joining me on Talking Scared. How, how's your day going? Hey, Neil. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. Uh, my day is uh, pretty good so far. It's, a, it's about noon my time, so, uh, you know, I'm just... I'm a, I'm a late riser, so this is my morning, I guess. <laughs> oh, I used to be a late riser, then I bought a dog, and now I, I see the wrong side of 7 a.m. most days. I'm jealous. <laughs> well, I have two kids. That, that's, they're like dogs, but uh, I, I, my wife kind of handles them in the morning. I'm lucky. Oh, very lucky. Very, how old are they? <laughs> 10 and 7. Oh, so they, they're kind of self-sufficient. They can make their own breakfast. You know, you can... Oh, I, they should move out, frankly. I think they should get their own place. <laughs> or at least start paying bills. Yeah, one of the two. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so whereabouts in the world are you? So I am uh, in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, on the east coast of the U.S. And uh, I've been living here for most of my life. I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. Um, so I'm a New York boy. But uh, this is, you know, Maryland is, is home for me. I think you're the first guest we've had from Maryland. And basically, I'm, I'm creating a, a map of the US with a, with a horror author kind of denoting each state. <laughs> so, so you can have Maryland on the, on the great road trip of, in, that will come in the future at some point. Perfect. Uh, I like that. Very cool. Um, st- well, I mean, to be honest, state geography is actually quite important in your new novel because you kind of flit around the 
the Maryland, New Jersey, Pennsylvania kind of area. Has that area got a, re- got a regional name? Basically, here we call that the Mid-Atlantic region. Um, and you're, you're right, the book kind of hangs in those that, that geographical location. Uh, most, of my, most of my books, if it, I generally write, and they take place in, in Maryland, because that's what I'm most familiar with and comfortable writing. This one, uh, although it starts there, he does, the main character does bounce around quite a bit. So in, in a way, it was sort of just me from my, from my laptop as I wrote this book, kind of exploring these little, these little towns that I'm creating really at, at, you know, in my head. Uh, but having been to several of them like that in real life, I kind of was very familiar with the, you know, the way of life out in those places. Well, I have questions about that kind of stuff, and we'll, we'll get to that um, in due time. But the, the novel in question, actually, to introduce it, is Come With Me, uh, which is out July 20th from Titan Books, I believe. That's right. Yes, correct. I really enjoyed it. I think I think listeners must get a little bit tired of, of hearing me say every week how much I enjoyed the novels I read. And and in, in the vast majority of cases, I do. Um, and I've, I've quite enjoyed recent weeks. I've felt like we've got the big summer blockbuster season of, of horror novels. And, and Come With Me is very much in that big, bombastic, kind of almost throwback horror style. I came quite close to the wire on finishing this one before we speak, <laughs> which w- was stressful. But on the positive side, it means it's really fresh in my mind. Thankfully, considering the time I had, it was incredibly readable. Um, but it, I mean, over to you, before we go any further into the conversation, can you give the listeners a basic synopsis or introduction to come with me? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, come with me. It's, it's about a uh, it's about a guy who uh, is you know in the first chapter of the book, his wife is killed in a mass shooting at a mall. Which, uh, if if you if you look at the news, it's sadly a fairly too common experience over here in the states. Uh, so I, you know, that happens in the the first chapter of the book, and then what he what he learns and through his process of dealing with her death and, and his and his grief is that. She had uh, basically a, a secret life that he didn't know about, um, and and sort of this dark obsession, as he refers to it, and uh, he basically cracks that open as a way of, of learning more about his wife, and um, pursues, uh, her, you know, kind of adopts and takes on her her obsession as his own, uh, as a way of kind of like one last moment in time with uh, with his wife. So. I mean, it's it's a book about grief. It's a book about tragedy. Um, it's a it's a thriller. It's a it's a horror novel. Um, but uh, you know, I think it's probably one of my most uh, you know human books to date that I've written. It, it very much is. It's it's quite a warm hearted novel about such dark things. And you know, in terrible interview style, like really, mm-hmm. this is not where we're supposed to do it. But I'm going I'm going to begin with, I suppose, a statement rather than a question. All right. Um, just to contextualize this from my experience of reading it. So I've read a lot of novels recently that I mentioned a moment ago, about that, that kind of blockbuster season, the, these big names. So Grady Hendrix's Final Girl Support Group, Max Brooks's Devolution, right. um, Stephen Graham Jones's My Heart is a Chainsaw coming up. Right. All amazing novels in their own right, but each of them feels like they've been marked or, you know, defined by some kind of hook or gimmick or postmodern conceit. But last week, I spoke to Chuck Wendig about his newest, The Book of Accidents. And now, hot on its heels, you and Come With Me. And those two books, yours and Chuck's, feel like 
for me, a welcome return to straightforward, zero bullshit, robust American storytelling of the kind that I grew up with. I man, I look. I lo- I love it. I am not a. I, I've never been a, a a writer who writes on on gimmick. I I, I you, they talk about the Hollywood pitch and what's what's uh, you know. Give me your one sentence elevator pitch for this great concept. I'm not a high concept kind of writer. I'm I'm very much you know the stuff I enjoy reading is is the same stuff I enjoy writing. That is character driven stories where the the plot, if you will, isn't some clunky outline of a series of events, but it is really just a, a storyline that unfolds based on the motivation and the whims of the characters in the story. And I and I've always written, you know, my stuff that way. It just I find that the people element the most appealing uh, you know, thing about writing and, and reading. Um, so that's, you know, that's what I try to do in my fiction. I am not a, I'm not, I'm never going to probably come to you and say, Hey, here's my idea for a time traveling vampire hooker story, which, you know, that that's not, I'm not a gimmick guy. You know, I I just, I can't wrap my head around that. I would read that book for the record, but yeah, (laughs) I would see the movie. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that this was my first kind of foray into your, your fiction. Turns out it's not. I, um, I was looking through my Kindle history last night, just randomly and and realized that i'd read snow uh, several years oh, ago yeah. uh, but i never kind of attributed it to you in my head so i enjoyed that a lot i enjoyed this one a whole lot more um and, and that comment about straightforward zero bullshit doesn't mean mm-hmm. that it's in any way just a pot bowing thriller there's, there's a lot more to this and we will get into it but i did love that retro that human i mean you put it in this way that that human feel it's about the characters rather than it is about the quirky things that happen to them. And I appreciated that. Right. And you know what, what, what's kind of ironic is, is my book Snow is sort of the antithesis of that. Snow was written because I wanted to try my hand at a, you know, a straight ahead 300 page, you know, pulp horror monster novel. And, and I, you know, I, I, I did it as a way of, of proving to myself that I could do something like that. But it's, uh, and, and a lot of people who read my stuff, really like that book. Um, for me, it was sort of an exercise in one arena of, of flexing that writer muscle, but it is not my, per- I wouldn't say Snow's my personal favorite. You know, I'm much more inclined to the, the more atmospheric character-driven stories. Well, having read this one, I'm, I'm going to try and fit in a, as many of your books as I can. I, I'm going to read December Park next because I love coming of age stories and it, it sounds very much my kind of thing. I would love to hear what you think about it. I, I will let you know. I mean, you've seen I tweet continually so no doubt I'll, I'll, I will foist my opinion upon you <laughs> back to come with me though so I hope you're comfortable starting where I'm going to start but you know it's a dark book and I know that it was it was born from a, a dark personal place now I don't want to force you to re- retread your own pain endlessly but it but it would seem neglectful not to at least mention the genesis of this novel if, if you're willing to speak about it that's exactly right. Uh, you know, a few years back, a friend of mine who was a reporter for a, a local newspaper here was killed uh, while at work with four other um, reporters in uh, the Capital Gazette shooting. And, um, you know, it was I was I, I knew this woman. She I was friends with her. I, I'd known her for years. She had championed uh, my, my books in the past and was always in, inviting me to local media events and, and was always writing up articles. Every time I had a book come out, I, I knew Wendy was going to was going to come over to the house and, and talk to me. And uh, we just had she was just a wonderful person. And, um, you know, what happened to her was just a horrific, horrific tragedy. And, you know, not just her, but to, to, uh, to everyone involved. 
the idea, you know, when, when something like that happens and, you know, if you're a musician, maybe you, maybe you write a chamber piece about it, you know, I, I don't know. But for me, part of writing this book was a way of kind of grieving her and, and spending some, some final moments with her in my head. Uh, and, and a lot of the qualities that I, that I think I imbued in, you know, the main, one of the main characters in the novel, Allison, uh, that I, you know, instilled in her character comes from from what I knew of Wendy, just her, you know, her, her righteousness, her, her love for her community, her, the, the strong desire to do good for people. Uh, she, she, she just was a, a champion of, of everything uh, this neighborhood, you know, this, this town had to offer. And, you know, I, I took a lot of those qualities and put it into the, into the ca- character of Allison in the novel. Um, so for me, it was a way of spending you know, a last, you know, last few months uh, with, with my friend, even after she died in, in writing that book. It was an exorcism, really, for me, just to kind of get that, get through that. Well, that's a beautiful sentiment. I mean, when something like that happens and, and you choose to, you know, incorporate it in your fiction or respond to it with fiction, what's it like? I mean, d- does it fuel creativity or does it does it hinder it? No, I, you know, it, it didn't... It, it fueled my desire to to want to tell this story, um, and you know, books are books are funny things. You know, at least for me, they they come from a variety of different places, uh, and it's not until all of these different ideas and thoughts that are unrelated happen to collide at some point in your head, and and, and uh, the beginning of a story takes place. So I I did not set out to write this book particularly because of what happened to my friend. Um, I, I, what I was doing at that time was trying to figure out what my next book was going to be. And I had, and I just had recently read Michelle McNamara's I'll be gone in the dark. And I, and I, that's, it's just, it's a, it's a wonderful book about her. It's a nonfiction about her search for the golden state killer out in uh, California over years and years. And, and she was, uh, she was just a, a, a blogger and, and a writer, and she was just investigating on her own at night while you know, her husband slept in the next room. And the book is awesome. And I'm like, oh, you know, that's a kind of, that's a neat concept. And, and then it wasn't until the, the character of uh, my two main characters in Come With Me started forming in my head, the, these characters of Aaron and Allison Decker, um, that I said, oh, okay, these characters are, are, are the pieces. They're, 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 they're the role players that will fit into this, this strange story I want to tell. And it wasn't until I, I sat down and started thinking it through in my head and, and thinking about actually writing it that I realized, my God, I'm, you know, I'm writing about Wendy, too. This is this is what happened. And, you know, that that whole opening chapter of her of her death is uh, a direct result of what I carried with me into the writing of this book from my friend, um, from what happened to her. I mean, it, it is worth saying for anyone who may be concerned or turned off by this, this is absolutely not a book about mass shootings at all it's that's more of an establishing framework isn't it you know it's a book about violence and grief and and one of the recurring motifs of the book is this idea that even the most abhorrent violence eventually becomes boring yeah whether it's a mass mass shooting or a a, or serial murder eventually the news cycle moves on and and from a personal perspective that must seem utterly absurd (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, and and you you've you've almost you know word for word taken a phrase out of the book where where I think you know Aaron, Aaron the main character kind of reflects on that exact same thing something about uh, 
you know, tra tragedies in America kind of roll along on a conveyor belt and they're neatly packaged and, and moved on uh, waiting for the next one to arrive. And, uh, you know, it's sort of a bleak way to look at it, but damn, if it doesn't like feel true a lot of the time too, you know. Suffice to say, you know, there is um, a lot of murder in, in this book. The, the central kind of narrative spine is, is about some unsolved deaths that have happened in the, what did you call it? The, the East Atlantic what was it called? Uh, the Mid-Atlantic region. Yeah, so, so the book is a kind of cool microcosmic road trip in where, where Aaron is trying to plumb this mystery of these murdered girls in and around that region. Right. In, in its simplest plot terms, I suppose, that the novel is a, a sort of dark, gothic murder mystery. And we, we will talk about that because it's interesting in itself. But there are these two deeper and, dare I say it, more literary topics laced throughout Come With Me. And the first, which you've alluded to already, is, is grief. Mm -hmm. To pull on that string a little further, moving away from your real grief, in, in purely fictional terms, how hard is it to write grief adequately? Grief's such a strange, disorienting experience. I mean, is it a struggle to do justice to it in words? Uh, you, you know, I, I think... In particular with this novel, it was important to find the right voice to get that point across. And it wasn't until I realized that, you know, I wasn't going to write this in the standard, you know, third person past tense or, or a, a first, you know, a, a straight first person narrative. And I, re I wrote that first chapter several times before I found the voice that I wanted to write in. And when I found it, it turned out to be sort of a, a bastardization of a second person voice, which is basically Aaron narrating his his own story uh, about his wife's death, but to his wife, uh, to her memory or her ghost or whatever you want to call it. And once I realized that was the narrative voice that I was going to use, it really, for me, kind of made the, the grief aspect flow a lot easier because I felt so it was such an intimate way to write and such an, and I hope, I hope it translates that in the reading of it, where it's really just a husband speaking to his wife who's died. It, it kind of made writing about that grief. I won't say easier, but it made it uh, genuine, I think. Um, and it allowed me to recognize that in grief, it's not just mourning it's not just sadness because when you it, it, it's 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 good memories it's it's things that you loved about a person it's things that'll make you smile and, and I realized it, it's important to not just mire this book down in, in depressing elements that there are, there was a lot of good stuff there too and and he reflects on all of that throughout the course of his his physical journey as he travels to these locations but in his own grieving you know mental journey uh to to touch on all of those different aspects of what it's like to 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 mourn someone yeah i mean what i found really quite impressive about it is the fact that it's it's what a 300 approximately 350 page novel and you pack a lot in there because there's there's multiple mysteries there's there's, there's all kinds of myth local mythologies mm -hmm. and there's also you know aaron grieving his wife and it, it, I wondered how hard it must be to accommodate the grieving process within genre fiction. Because, you know, if you take like a literary na navel-gazing narrative in which people have yeah. 100 pages to sit around and come to terms with their feelings, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But your book requires Decker to just get on with things all the time. And was it a juggling act to make sure, was it kind of like, oh, must mention the grief, but also must, must solve mystery? I mean, how do you balance those things? 
Well, you know what? I mean, they actually, they turned out to be pretty complimentary of each other where, where I like the aspect that here's a guy who's pursuing uh, this, this, this dark chain of events that puts him directly in the, in the, the, the path of people who are, who are suffered like he's suffered. Um, and so he's forced to, uh, you know, kind of see the mirror image of himself in, in their grief and, and whether in, in, on occasion that, that helps him understand things better or or confuses things more it seemed to you know whichever way it goes it, it happened for him it, it worked to to serve the story so what they wound up being a pretty complimentary uh way of going about that the complicated stuff is to have you know his his grieving process kind of run parallel to the the story arc where you know he, he's he's at a certain point in his grief where our you know story is also climbing that pinnacle towards the the climax of the novel so that that took a little massaging to kind of work that those angles but okay yeah you know i, I found them to be complementary actually well yeah because it, it, it is beautiful with poise it never feels like one is at the expense of the other um mm. when i've read them where you know i have read a lot of books where someone dies and then it's like oh that's a good plot point and then we forget to actually acknowledge that death for 300 pages you know um right. so yeah it was it was it was beautifully done I mentioned that grief was the first topic that I felt was the spine of this book. That the second, obviously interlinked with that, is marriage. And, yeah. and you emphasize that massively with the very first line of the book, which simply says every marriage has its secrets. It, it, it kind of made me reflect that I'm really surprised that, that marriage, not love or sex or dating, but actual marriage, mm-hmm. I'm surprised it's not more of a focus in, in horror. Because there's actually something truly disquieting about the notion that you spend your life alongside a person who, no matter what you may claim, you can never truly know in their entirety. And, and to me, that's a perfectly uncanny scenario. Was it, was it fun to approach? I mean, how did you want to incorporate that into your book? Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, it, kind of based on what you just said, I, I've, I've kind of always thought of that too and found it fascinating. And, and uh, you know, we're... we're you know, by nature, you tend to be a little bit skeptical of, you know, people and, and situations. And you probably wouldn't trust some coworker with if your life was on the line, depending, I, you know, I don't know. But you, you look at marriage as this kind of, well, okay, marriage is this sanctity, this this union that we just blindly kind of, because it is, it's faith. It's all based on faith. What, what you know, we, you, we commit to this relationship, not knowing where it's going to go. And we we work, we, we live together and live through it and see where it takes us down the road. And I find it interesting to, to look at it just from the point of view that you mentioned, where it's like, how well do you ever really know that person though? And I'm, I'm sure that, that there's hidden corners of, of every relationship. Um, and, and, and just like the book says, most of the time, it's probably not, well, I don't even say most of the time, sometimes it's probably not even a big thing, but sometimes they're, they're big, there's some big, dark, monstery secret hiding somewhere. And, uh, you know, so that's kind of what I wanted to explore and to kind of expand on what that theme is beyond just the, the, the relationship between Aaron and his wife is the whole idea of self and, and other self and who, who we are, you know, who our spouse is to us, but who we are as, to ourselves as well. And part of Aaron's journey in this novel is to, you know, he puts himself into positions that, that he's not comfortable with, that he wouldn't ordinarily do for the sake of closure uh, based on what happened to his wife. You know, he is, he, he is not 
Allison when the book starts. He is a he's a bookworm. He's a, he translates Japanese novels into English. He's he's very satisfied staying at home and not associating with people. And I could relate to that. But by the end of the novel, after everything he's done, he's 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 had to come to his own revelation about who he is. Um, and I had I had fun, you know, exploring that and 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 pushing him to his limits. And I also had fun with um, toying with the you know the the quasi literal reveal of Aaron thinking he he's talking to his translator self throughout the book. Like he has to summon this other self to help him get through this, you know? So there, there's this whole identity thing, this personal identity, who, who the person is we married yet who we are in ourselves too. Well, I, I wouldn't dare spoil some of the final reveals mm -hmm. of this book, but there is, there is a thing, there is a direction that you take that idea of other selves and who we are to ourselves. You take that in a direction at the end, which kind of took my breath away a little bit um and i can imagine this as a movie where there is a sequence of, of of scenes we are shown from different perspectives that goes boom 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 and we all sit back in our sofas and go oh yeah. i get it you know yeah yeah and the, the metaphys metaphysical directions of the last few chapters of this book are are wholly unexpected and, and brilliant but it, what does come to mind when you said then about like at the start of the book he's not allison Right. The title of the book, Come With Me, that phrase is a bit of a refrain that we hear again and again. And almost every time we hear it, it's, it's in a different context and with it, almost a different emphasis on one of the, the different three words in that sentence. And I like that refrain. Right. But I do wonder, in, in one way, I suppose, the book could be read as, as Alice, even Alison from Beyond the Grave, taking, taking a, her husband on a journey, couldn't it, and saying, come with me. And, and, you know, almost become me to an extent, or at least following my footsteps. Yeah, I mean, that that's exactly it. Uh, you know, that was a deliberate, you know, the title was a, the reuse, the refrain of it, as you said, was deliberate for that reason, just to show how the echo of these events uh, kept coming back to him in different scenarios. And, and in part, it factored into the grief process. It's sort of like, you know, if... <laughs> You know, if you know somebody who, you know, died and they drove a white car, it seems like every time you walk out of the house, now you see a white car. You know, it's sort of that echo of circumstance. So I wanted to do that with that line um, that she says to him throughout the novel. And, and, and it does have different meaning depending on who's saying it and what the circumstances are. So that was all. Yeah, that was I, I don't know if I answered your question on that one. But yeah, I mean, that was that was on purpose. I think it was a random musing on my point. I, I, the, the worst <laughs> thing is when, when I think of something during an interview, and I, I never really put it very articulately. So, yeah, I mean, b b before we, before we move on, in terms of the whole, you know, marriage and sadness and those twin pillars. I mean, first of all, I'd like to just very briefly read a short sequ uh, sequence from one of the opening pages in, in which you say that quote no one thinks when they first meet a person that there is some cosmic clock counting down the years months weeks days hours minutes seconds until you will stop knowing each other it doesn't occur to most people when you meet the person with whom you wish to spend the rest of your life that at some point one of you will leave now, that's a beautiful way of putting such sadness and, and i got married a few years ago and my wife is my best friend in the world so to me that that mm -hmm. cosmic clock is, is true horror it really is i think that is the the most horrific concept in in your entire book a book that's full of murder and mayhem that's the scariest part mm -hmm. and i wonder this yeah. is where it gets trivial have you ever heard a mm -hmm. song by jason isbell called 
if we were vampires? Uh, I know Jason Isbell's stuff. I don't know if I know that, that exact song, though. No. Uh, this is a new thing I'm starting to do on this podcast where I recommend everyone go away and listen to a certain song that I think complements uh, the, the, the novel. And Jason Isbell's If We Were Vampires basically takes that sentiment and makes a song out of it. Um, and I, oh, I'd love you to listen to it and see what you think because it, it's the perfect complement to your novel. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No. Yeah, I'll check that out. Yeah, that's my that's my new feature, my new multimedia feature. Um, that's cool. No, I like that. <laughs> right, listen, let's lighten the mood with some murder. <laughs> all right. Obviously, I'm impressed by all the stuff we just talked about, which elevates your book far beyond the standard pot boiler. But you have also given us a hell of a plot line. And I'm interested. I'm always interested. Where did you get that aspect of the story from? How did... How did that come to mind? And why did you decide it would be the vehicle for all these themes we've talked about? Uh, well, you know, it, it goes back to what I said um, about, uh, you know, books, book ideas come from, you know, it's a confluence of ideas that kind of come together serendipitously. And then you go, ah, that's, that's my, that's a, that's a story there, you know, where characters come from one spot, story comes from another uh, atmosphere, tone comes from someplace else it's not until they all combine that, that, that I start going, okay, there's a book in there somewhere. And the, the, this particular aspect of these murders, uh, again, came from, uh, you know, I'm a horror writer. I love this kind of stuff. I love the true crime stuff. I love, you know, all these unsolved homicides. It's, It's always, it's fascinating to me. Um, and I've always known that there was a, a sect of people who, you know, consider themselves these like laptop investigators. They pop online and just try to see if they can solve crimes, you know? So uh, that was only exacerbated when I read that uh, Michelle McNamara book, um, which which is, the, I don't know if you, you've read it or you're familiar with it, Neil, that I'll be gone in the dark. It, it's a great book. But, um, you know, after I read that, you know, I said, man, that that is that is a really cool, you know, and this was somebody doing it in real life. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, maybe I, I, I could crib that and fictionalize it and see where that takes me. So that's one of the seeds for this book came from from reading that and from my you know just my interest in an all all dark serial killer type things well a few things one i i'm familiar with the book i haven't read the book um I, i'm a big fan of pat and oswald and i know that he right. was married to michelle McMahon. um and right. i think the biggest tragedy is that she died so shortly before they actually found the bastard right i know there's some it's... bitter bitter irony in that uh, I, I, yeah, I just oh yeah. I hope I don't believe in an afterlife, but I hope if there is one, she's she's looking down smugly. Um, <laughs> but I'm, it's it's cool that you picked. I think the only case of someone being an armchair sleuth who wasn't a weirdo, because you watch these Netflix documentaries about people who decided to try and trap a killer, and and they want to be the story. You know they. Like that, yeah. have you seen Don't Fuck With Cats on Netflix? Yes, yes, like, I did. Yeah. The people trying to solve the crime are as creepy as the, as the criminal. It gets really <laughs> odd. You're exactly right. And I think the reason why Michelle's book was a, a, a springboard for me is because you're right. For the first time, it's it's she's coming from it from a, a journalistic standpoint, from a, from a curiosity standpoint. You didn't get a sense that she was weird, you know, um, and you know, I, I think that made it like we went back to being more human, you know, story, human stories. It made it relatable to me. Um, and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a great character there. That's a real interesting person. 
without being creepy. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I, I must read it. It's just trying to find the time, honestly, the endless reading. Um, yeah, I understand. <laughs> so that that's one side of the narrative. We talked about, you know, the murders, obviously tiptoeing around spoilers, but tell us about Gashead. <laughs> we don't have to go into how much Gashead may or may not be real, how much he may or may not affect the plot, but as a as a concept, it's fascinating. So tell my listeners a little about Gashead and where that came from. Yeah, um, you know, I... Uh... A lot of my fiction, particularly the the recent you know batch of books that I've published in the past few years, tends to walk this line of being supernatural horror or plausible suspense thrillers, and I kind of like that ambiguity because it 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 requires the reader to bring their own interpretation of what they're reading uh, to the table, um, and. Uh, you know, I've done that with my past few books. I think Come With Me probably does that most successfully out of everything I've written, where it, it if you want to think of this as the window dressing to what is really a supernatural horror novel, you can you can walk away from this book and, and absolutely believe that. If you want to think this is just a straight ahead thriller, mystery, suspense novel with no, no supernatural underpinnings, you could argue that's the truth as well. And I love that kind of stuff. Um, so with Gashead, you know, bait you know, to play off of what I just said, I, I love the idea of urban legends and and stories passed down from generations or or these small towns that have their their own, you know, Mothman or their own swamps monster or, or you know, anything like that. I love that sort of stuff because it's a way to to, you know, really just kind of spook somebody and 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 dive into a mythos of something that may not even exist. You know, I don't have, you don't have to, it, it's not like Stephen King's It, where the clown is the central force, you know, in, in pivoting the novel. This is, this is sort of just a, a, a dressing to, to say, hey, this could also be what's going on. So uh, I, I love that kind of stuff. And, and with Gashead, you know, without, I don't want to give too much away mm-hmm. in, into the details of, of, of what he or it or what they are. Um, but it, it felt so natural to kind of include this what if, you know, boogeyman supernatural entity that runs just maybe a step behind uh, along the periphery of this story the whole time. And um, and then what that payoff may or may not be by the end of the novel. You know, I, I just I, I found that ambiguity fascinating. And I love the, the, the creepiness of the story of where he comes from. Uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of a lot of that backstory there is a bit of a spoiler for the novel. But, you know, I, I just it's it's really got that that whole sort of you ever lived in a small town where the, the the local bridge is haunted or the wood or there's a ghost in the woods and stuff. This is exactly where Gashead comes from. That same kind of zeitgeist of, of, of urban legendary. Yeah. I, I love that stuff. I, one, I one of my dreams is to drive around the USA, just writing an encyclopedia of local legend. Cause that's the book I want to own, you know, I think, oh, I, and, and the smaller and creepier town, the better. Oh yeah, I mean, and you, there, there's so many. I mean, like the the hill where you could roll uphill instead of down. You know, I mean, all yeah. those, you know, the creepy bridges and rivers and you know stuff like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I was just really, I really kind of got my kicks off of just writing about that that whole gas head. It's, it's, I don't even call it a subplot. It's just kind of it, it haunts the, the the corners of the novel. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. I mean, I, I wanted to kind of mention something, but I don't want to go into the way. So I'm trying to think of a clever way to put this. So. Um, <laughs> 
you know, without going into what gas head is, because that's best left for the reader. Basically, there, there is an extent in this novel to which we question the effects, supernatural or otherwise, of the pollution in these refinery towns in the yeah. um, in this part of the world. And, and it put me in mind of an article I read years ago that I found fascinating. And I just wonder whether this was any kind of the germination for you, that there was this theory that serial killing in the middle decades of the 20th century peaked because of the amount of leaded gas in the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I, I don't know if I've heard that in particular, but stuff similar. I mean, uh, you know, the the notion that uh, some outside influence is breaking in uh, is always been there as, as a possibility of, of how, you know, what happens, you know, what happens when people lose their freaking minds, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I, and I do, I find that, I find that fascinating. And, and honestly, I could have probably written an entire book just on that idea. Um, I do find it creepier where, when there's uh, less uh, real estate, uh, donated to to skate the you know the horrific aspects of, of something you know if you do 400 pages on on an urban legend by page 100 you're like okay i get it okay yeah but if you if you just hint at it and and let the reader kind of piece together some of the clues that you've you've scattered throughout to me i think that's 100 times more frightening and satisfying linking from one thing to the next as i try and mm-hmm. do as best i can um <laughs> we've mentioned there we've, we've alluded to these refineries and the, this yeah. kind of you know, the pollution and the industrial, post-industrial malaise of these towns and stuff like that. And, and, and you depict that part of the world as a kind of, you know, hellish landscape, kind of Hieronymus Bosch almost. Um, mm. And there's, a, there's an epic scale to it from this kind of vertiginous bridge in the town of Furness to this yeah. hugely polluting refinery and, and polluted town of Woodvine. Are these settings based on real places? Is this what it's like in in, in that part of the world? Uh, I mean, those two locations are fictionalized in the novel, but they are based on um, much uh, uh, happier versions of those those towns. Um, you know, uh, the Furnace, West Virginia, is sort of my my. Um, photo negative of Harper's Ferry, which is a, a small uh, colonial town out, you know, in West Virginia here. Um, and then, uh, you know, the town of Woodvine is uh, initially it's based on uh, Centrella, or if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Centrella, Pennsylvania. I don't know if you've, you're familiar with, so with that at all. So that's the place where the fire has been burning for like 45 yes, years exactly. or something, right? Yeah. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I wanted to come up with my own version of a, a yeah. 45 year fire. So I, am I, I right? That's a, that's a mine seam, that, a coal seam that caught fire and has been burning for decades underground. Yes. Yeah, that's what it is. That seems insane to me. That, do people it, still it live there? I don't think so. You know what? I've, I've only seen pictures. I've never actually been out there, but I think it's deserted. I think it's, I'm not even sure if the fire still burns now. Um, uh, but if you've seen pictures of it, it's haunting because it's the roads are all broken apart and there's nothing but like, I guess everybody who visits there spray paints some slogan on the road. Um, and, and it's just really eerie. It looks like if like, you know, the land of Oz just fell into disrepair after a tsunami. It's yeah. creepy. So these are the police are the kind of analogs for your um, for your settings in this novel. Yeah. You know, and I just I, I, I try to 
think about, you know, if I'm walking into that, these towns, what, what ups the creep factor for me? Where, you know, what, and not only, not only for the sake of just being freaky, but, but because, you know, the way I looked at this book and, and the, and these themes, uh, it's sort of like bad places breed bad things, you know? So these places would, would have to inherently almost cosmically attract the kind of uh, murders and, and, and problems that my character is dealing with in the book, they would almost have to almost attract it like a magnet, you know, a magnet force. That's kind of what I play with in the novel. I, I think by the end of it, he, he even, you know, there's a very, very subtle suggestion that these towns themselves are off. They, they don't fit snugly within the fabric of our plane of existence. And it, it's, it's suggested uh, throughout the book, but really kind of uh, one scene in particular by the end where, where we kind of recognize that this, there may be something else going on here. Well, I find it really interesting, that exact idea, like this idea of the bad place, because, mm-hmm. I mean, my understanding of Amer- American Gothic is it's always focused on the bad place, whether it's Shirley Jackson's Hill House or, you know, the Marston mm-hmm. House, and wherever, it's always a, a, a sort of kind of loci of, of, of evil. Um, and, and it feels like these towns that you're giving us are, are haunted by the past, just like these bad places always have been. But in the case of, you know, the, the old Indian burial site or a plantation yeah. house where it's kind of like spoiled ground, you're writing about a place that is literally soured and spoiled by gas and chemicals it's a kind of ecological haunting yeah well it, it also it, it kind of modernizes that that whole thing too i mean we're you know this country is built on an indian burial ground so yeah there, there's a lot of history there that that you know may seem removed from where we are now in 2021 but to to consider the idea that maybe we continue to propagate these things by building factories by, uh, you know, from the fast food that we eat, from the, the obesity, you know, everything that, that we, we continue to do in, in light of knowing what's better for, for ourselves, we continue to do it. And I, and, I, and I find that, you know, there's some sort of echo of the past in, in modernity, uh, not just throughout the book, but I, I feel like in real life. So that's kind of why these places, there's such a, a, a perfect fit, you know, uh, bad place where people, where, 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 this you've got you've got a factory spewing noxious fumes into the, the air so badly that it still snows or rains down ash years after it's shut down. I mean, that's that's horrific. So what kind of thing comes from a place like that, you know? So Centralia Centralia that you mentioned or somewhere like Chernobyl, you know, who knows in two hundred years what kind of law will have accrued around those places. You know, when we've lost the reality and the yeah when the scientific um truth has passed into law what monsters will those places spawn exactly i I, yeah and i I think it's you know it's fascinating and it's so such a statement on humanity that we you know that things keep happening like that yeah yeah more and more eco stuff is starting to come up on this podcast like i spoke to jeff vandermeer i spoke to chuck wendig who's obviously a big you know he's, he's very interested in all that kind of stuff and it feels like you know, horror has always been, um, so in my eyes, a kind of anxious cultural response to whatever the prevailing terror of the day is. And it feels like this ecological stuff is creeping into novels that aren't even nom- nominally about that topic. It's just this 
this fucked up backdrop we have now that, that that's where the fear is you know yeah so it was interesting to see you write these places as these stained newly haunted locations i really enjoyed it oh yeah all the way through i had a really vivid sense of what i was imagining which is not always the case for me i don't have a, i don't have a great internal eye um but this book it felt like visually it's put it in cinematic terms, one of those 90s serial killer thrillers that were always kind of murky and bleached out, you know, Seven or The Bone Collector or Silence of the Lambs or stuff like that. But even more so, things like TV shows like Twin Peaks and obscurely Chris Carter's Millennium. And, and I realise why, because mm-hmm. it's these landscapes, these bleak, empty, broken towns in the middle of the country. Um, they, they seem to have their own kind of... Of, of, of gothic palette, I suppose. Well, I mean, look, everything you've mentioned there is right in my wheelhouse. I love, I love all that stuff. And I think what kind of makes those uh, stand out from kind of like your more modern fair, you know, run of the mill kind of horror stuff is, is there, there was uh, such a, a, a focus, not just on story and character, but on atmosphere and tone. And you look at those, the, those movies and TV shows you mentioned, they had such a, a, a richness of atmosphere to them where you could almost, you, you could see a, a one second clip and just know from the color palette of a, of one of those films, what movie it is. Yeah. And to me, that's always been important in my writing is trying to convey that somehow on the page that we, that same emotion that we get from when we watch those kind of movies and TV shows. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that, that you, you make those, those kind of comparisons. Cause I do tend to, do that deliberately. I'm just glad I was in the, in the right kind of area because often I, I say these things sometimes to authors and they just blank out and I can tell I've got it wildly wrong. Um, no, 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 you're you're on you're on point. Is there any any kind of talk about adaptation of this because it would make a great film? Yeah, uh, well, actually, uh, the TV show rights have already been an option, so they're working on it right now. Fantastic. Is that Netflix yeah. or is it going to be a streaming service type thing? Can't really say a lot about it right now, but uh, the studios have already optioned the project, and there's a, a writer involved working on it. And uh, it, it, by all accounts, seems extremely promising. The, the writer is—I've had some conversations with him, and he's fantastic. He totally gets the material, which is rare when you go to to adapt something, um, you know, for for TV and movies. But I'm I'm just I'm real excited. I'm hoping it it moves forward. COVID. COVID kind of slowed down a, a lot of the the film project stuff that that was going on for the past two years. That you know, I had some some different a bunch of projects in different stages of development, and COVID just kind of ground everything to a halt for you know, like a year and a half. So th- things are picking up now, and I'm hoping I'm hoping to have some good news on this this show in particular soon. Excellent. I mean, does this book feel like um like a breakthrough for you? Like um like a I don't know that might be the wrong word, but it, it feels like I've been aware of you for a long time. But I'm you know I'm into horror. But it feels like yeah. this one just by getting a litmus test of social media, it feels like this mm-hmm. one is getting getting some you know wider aggregate of of attention in some way. Does it feel different? You, you know what? Not to jinx it, but it, it kind of does. Um, you know, this is. I don't, is this my 15th or 16th book? I, I've been, you know, been writing for 20 years and there's always these little plateaus that you reach throughout your career. And, and, you know, every few books I feel like, okay, now I'm at this level in my career and then it goes up and, you know, and, and you play from here. This one certainly feels, um, I think it's my best book uh, that I've written. Um, the, the early reviews I've seen echo that sentiment. So I'm hopeful uh, that, that it turns out to be that way. Um, you know, 
but uh, it does feel a little different. Uh, and I, but you know what? I, I can never, I can never divorce myself from the writer, uh, uh, you know, in me who writes these books and look at it unbiased. You know, I, it, it's such a personal book for me. So maybe I feel that way because of that. Um, but I mean, I'm just keeping my fingers crossed and hoping it does, hoping it does well. You know, the folks at Titan Books are awesome and they, they have been pushing the book and they're, they're real excited about it. Um, so I've got them backing me and uh, just wait and see what happens. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of Titan. The covers are amazing. Um, they're great. They've been great. And they're very kind to kind of fledgling podcasters like me as well. They send me plenty of arcs. So, <laughs> yeah, um, I'll finish up soon. But I want to ask a question more generally about your work and then embarrass you by heaping praise on, on a specific piece of writing. I know that you write fast. I mean, I've read somewhere that you aim for 15 pages a day. Is that right? Uh, back when I was younger. Yeah, that's an old quote. Right, <laughs> okay. Little, you okay. Know. The reason I ask that is because um, th- this book contains some of the the more lyrical prose I've read in, in such a, you know, inverted commas, mainstream horror novel in, in quite a while. Mm-hmm. And I want to read a brief, brief paragraph here. because I really want to get across to people how much I enjoyed this book, basically, because I, I think sometimes I come across as a bit of a flat tone that I enjoy everything. I want to stress how much I love this one. And this this piece of writing spoke to me. So you just a scene-setting thing, and you write, quote, I drove across a stone, a stone bridge that arced over the roiling, slate-coloured waters of the Potomac River. I could see the town of Furness from this vantage along the opposite bank, visible as a collection of tiny train village houses and storefronts and at least one church spire. Hills rose up in the background, brown and cold-looking, connected in places by the oxidised blue girders of ancient train trestles. Chimneys exhaled white smoke into the overcast sky, where it seemed to get snared like cotton in the leafless canopy of trees. You're not writing that at speed, surely. What is your editing process like? (laughs) Because that feels like something that has been really worked over and, and you know, crafted. You know, I, I usually I just kind of go stream of conscious when, when I write. I don't really outline my books. I, I, I have a rough idea of where, where I'm starting, where I'm going, where I want to end up. Sometimes I get there. Sometimes it goes in a different direction. Um, I, I tend to edit as I write. So I'll, I'll write a chapter and then... You know, the next day I'll sit down and I'll start maybe chapter two, but then I'll go back to chapter one and I'll fix some stuff there. Um, I do a lot of lying in bed at night and then sitting bolt upright and jotting down phrases like on a notebook bed, like on a notebook or something. And that's probably the closest I get to to, to outlining or note, you know, taking notes on anything. But uh, you know, kind of what you know when you're writing and you're you're in the zone and you're just feeling, you know, what it is that you're doing. Um, you know, that stuff just kind of it kind of happens. So it's, it's best to kind of let it, you know, not, I don't question it. I just kind of let it do its thing. And if I'm satisfied with it, great. But I'm also that, that kind of writer where I will go back and I will take a word out and put it back in and take it out and put it back in and, and like a hundred times until I'm like, oh, okay, it, it, this is how it should say. I mean, I'm very, I'm very, uh, obsessive compulsive about that sort of thing. Okay. Well, you've just described my, my complete and exact writing process. From the not planning to the words back into the sitting bottle right in bed. That's my life, except I don't think I've ever yet written a sentence as nice as, you know, white smoke getting caught like cotton in the canopy of trees. So clearly it's working for you in a way it isn't for me. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, in short, it's a beautifully written book as well as a great story. But to, to finish up, 
uh, Ronald, I always ask each of my guests the same two questions. So if you could recommend a book for my listeners to read, what would it be and why? Uh, probably, probably one of the best ones I've read recently has been uh, Stephen Graham Jones's The Only Good Indians. I thought that was just fantastic. Um, it, it's, you know, it, it, it pushed all the buttons for me that I, that I want a, a horror novel to do. You know, it, it, it owns, it's, it, it's a story. Uh, the, the voice was rich. Uh, the characters were unique without being over the top. Um, and I, I just felt it was just a, just a genuine, honest novel. So that would, that, that's my recommendation. I think that has now pushed that one firmly into the lead for most recommended book on this podcast. Yeah, I, it doesn't surprise me. Probably, well, you, you ask writers and they'll say that. I know the book, some of the reader reviews were, were you know, torn on, on it. Because, but, you know, and I, maybe, as I said on another podcast, maybe those readers just don't read good because <laughs> that book is awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've got Stephen on the show in August um, for his new one, My Heart is a Chainsaw, which have you managed to, right. have you got read I, that one yet? I have not read that yet, no. I, I mean, I'll, I'll say this now because I will say it to Stephen and I said it in my review, but I, I read that book, My Heart is a Chainsaw, um, kind of reading it, worrying that I wasn't enjoying it enough compared to The Only Good Indians. Um, and then hmm. in, the, in the second half of it, it, it turns into an absolute masterclass. Like I've never read a novel that has sustained tension for... Uh, the the length and pitch that the second half of that novel does and it just feels like Stephen Graham Jones is becoming a phenomenon on the quiet mm-hmm. do you know what I mean so I yeah I'm looking yeah. forward to speaking to him about Indians and about um, Chainsaw and I will tell him that along with many people you're a fan of his work yeah man well and I'll definitely listen to that interview <laughs> excellent and and my last my last question Ronald um, right. what truly scares you Ah, uh, something happening to one of my kids. Probably that. Otherwise, I'm a pretty unflappable dude. <laughs> okay, okay. Or 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 liquor stores being closed. That that's terrifying. <laughs> See, this is why I stay quiet because it's very hard to end, end a, it's very hard to end an interview on someone talking about things happening to their children. You know, you, you need a palate cleanser. So thank you for that. <laughs> you got it. No problem. <laughs> Listen, Ronald. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for your thoughtful answers and, and thank you for coming with me. It was it, it turned my weekend sitting in the sun um, into a lot of fun and I hope it is the massive success it deserves to be. Well, thanks so much, Neil, for having me on. I appreciate all the kind words you said. This was a blast. I appreciate it. Well, Ronald Malfi, thank you for talking scared. I really do mean it. I'm off to read as many Ronald Malpy novels as I can pack in. Well, as many as this show's brutal reading schedule will allow me to. If the rest of his fiction is anything like this, then it's like finding one of the better paperback horror gods from the 80s. The ones who understood that they owe the reader some respect and some depth and not just tentacled monsters and borderline porn. I know that you lot, by now, know when I really love a book. And this was one that I really did. There's little to say that isn't just a reiteration of the praise I've already thrown at Ronald. But it's godly written, with some startling imagery. I still can't get over that image of clouds like cotton caught on winter branches. 
the characterization is fantastic. It's layered and so true that I really didn't know who was even a hero or a villain or whether there were those distinctions for much of the novel. This book is all shades of grey and doubt. But most of all, it's the way he writes about love and grief and marriage and hides all that stuff inside the skin of a paperback rack thriller. Really, it's wonderful. I do feel that I want to tell you more about the woman who inspired Come With Me, though. I didn't want to push Ronald on it too much, as I imagine he's spending a lot of interviews being asked and kind of demanded to reconsider his own grief. And though I'm an interviewer and I'm supposed to ask him whatever questions benefit the interview, I'm also not a dick, so I touched on it and moved on. But I think now is the time for some detail. Ronald's friend, the, the lady who inspired at least the opening setup of Come With Me, was a woman called Wendy Winters. She was a journalist working for the Capital City Gazette in Annapolis, Maryland, and she was there the day in 2018 that a piece of trash, who I'm not going to bother naming, opened fire in the offices of the paper. Five people died, one of them Wendy, but many more survived because this 65-year-old woman yelled no, picked up a trash can, and charge the dickhead with the gun, buying time for her colleagues to escape. I don't suppose anything can really be a fitting monument to that kind of bravery, but Ronald's novel does capture and convey the, well, yeah, the bravery, there isn't a better word for it, the bravery of taking a stand in that kind of situation. And I just thought that you should all know a little bit more about her. I know a lot of you are already reading Come With Me, and I do hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. It's already out. It came out, I think, on the 20th of July, and it's one of the standouts of the year for me so far, in a year that's been ludicrously packed with quality already. Speaking of quality, I should mention that I've been lucky enough to get an early read of Stephen King's newest, Billy Summers, and it's just as brilliant as you'd expect. It's out August 3rd, I believe. To be honest, it's not a horror novel, not even vaguely. It's a crime thriller, a genre that I'm calling sunlit noir, and I'm taking ownership of that phrase too. If you like King's non-horror stuff, particularly if you enjoyed 11, 22, 63, then you will love Billy Summers. It treads really similar ground with a stranger coming to town and being absorbed into this community whilst all the time living a double life. It could be 11, 22, 63, but told from the shooter's perspective. And then, halfway through, it becomes another story altogether. I'm actually reviewing it for the UK Guardian, so unless they kill my commission, you can read my fuller thoughts soon. I'm only mentioning it here because, well, obviously, I can't get him on the show to talk about it himself. Not yet, anyway. Honestly, one day I'm going to get him. He'll be mine, a sort of podcasting Annie Wilkes-Paul Sheldon relationship. I hope I didn't hear that. Um, but yeah, I wanted to talk about it and just, just briefly mention it because these books that we've been discussing this summer, Chuck Wendig, Ronald Malfi, a few more to come, they do feel like that return to the big blockbuster horror fiction that King, well, both wrote and established. Um, and I ran a Twitter poll, well, a Twitter conversation recently where I asked people to tell me what their favourite Stephen King book was and I got hundreds of responses. So yeah, I just thought it was fitting to tell you that he's still got it and his newest is brilliant. Definitely make time for Billy Summers. Right, only thing left to say, obviously, is to do the whole get in touch thing. 
First of all, a huge thanks to the latest Patreon subscribers. We've got Luan Lofton, Leanne Abe, and Ali Malinenko, which is just a great name to say out loud. Thanks to each of you and welcome. You make a massive difference financially and in terms of keeping my morale up. I know I promised Patreon listeners the latest deep dive into extreme horror. That got delayed because of various commitments and the extreme heat uh, last week. But I'm working on it pretty much as we speak. So watch out and, yeah, sorry if that one sickens you. Please don't judge me. (laughs) Everyone else, do consider signing up for Patreon. Link is in the show notes or on social media. Or you can go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Speaking of social media, always get in touch. Mostly I'm there on Twitter, at TalkScaredPod. I flirt with Instagram, at TalkingScaredPod, or email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I love your emails, and I'm getting more and more each week. I've also had a good few iTunes reviews recently, which is fantastic. I've stopped prompting you to do that, uh, because there's too much to say. But if you can... Just a reminder, please do subscribe and review. It massively helps promote the show and makes things like sponsorship that little bit easier. Oh, and yeah, actually, on that note, in two weeks, I'll have an actual announcement for you about this show collaboration with the book club that I've been alluding to. Things are firm now, and soon we'll have a whole new way to interact and talk books. Right, that's it, I think. Next week, I'm back with a book that takes witches and wonder and womanhood and makes a massive horror-adjacent sci-fi stew out of it. But until then, tell someone you love them. Get down on one knee. Keep an eye on the cosmic clock, but don't dwell on it. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>